Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thank you for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 26. Today, you'll hear my interview with the one and only Ron Yates. But first, Texas wineries are in the news. A docu-series about Texas wine? Yep, you know it. This project has been in the works for a while, and now the 20-minute long pilot is out, and so is the first episode. It's called Texas Winemakers. The docu-series was developed, directed, and produced by Philip Wagner of Tiny Mirror Productions. Katie Jane Seaton of Farmhouse Vineyards is executive producer, and they're working in collaboration with the Texas Department of Agriculture and Go Texan. In the pilot episode, you'll see Andy Timmons, Dr. Richard Becker, Chris Brundrett, Ben Calais, Ron Yates, and a few others share their thoughts on the Texas wine industry, past, present, and future. It's a professionally shot and edited piece. It's a must-watch for all fans of Texas wine. Additional episodes are coming soon, and they include even more Texas wine people, like Kim McPherson of McPherson Cellars and Jason Santani of Yano Estacado Winery. Find it by searching... Texas Winemakers on YouTube, or find the link to it in the show notes. Wine enthusiast just published Amy Beth Wright's article, We Are Not Constrained by Tradition, The Budding Wine Scene in Fredericksburg, Texas. Although the title makes it seem like it's a new thing, in the article, Amy Beth does acknowledge that wine has been grown commercially in Fredericksburg for over 40 years. There are a lot of wineries and winemakers mentioned in the article, including Mike Nelson of Abastris, who said, Texas is larger than France, but the AVAs still kind of get lumped together as Texas. The Texas High Plains are much further away from the hill country than Bordeaux is to Burgundy. Some grapes do better in the High Plains, and others appreciate the hotter climate we have here in the hill country. Wine educator Andre Boada arrived here from Sonoma, and he said, Fredericksburg kind of reminds me of Sonoma County in the 80s and 90s. There were roughly 80 wineries there. And then all of a sudden, it grew to 400. Right now, in the Texas Hill Country, there are about 80 wineries, and 40 more are permitted for next year. There's more in the article from Julie Culkin of Paternalis Cellars, the Bilgers from Adega Vino, Nikila Nara Davis from Colossi Cellars, and more. And there's even a quote from Paula Salinas, beverage manager of La Bergerie, a Fredericksburg wine tasting room and market. Nikila Nara Davis says, It's really exciting to see new, young, energetic people come into the industry and want to make good quality Texas wine. They have the drive of serious wine regions with our own type of Southern hospitality. Dale Robertson of the Houston Chronicle has a tasting panel that has been making some great recommendations. Dale's most recent article was Wines to Enjoy on the 4th of July, and two Texas wines made the cut. They both scored high on both value and quality. The Lost Draw Cellars High Plains Rosé was one, and the taster said it's dry and tart with great acidity, flavors of apricot and citrus. They also included the 2019 Cherami White Wine Blend, and they said that it's flowery and aromatic with a long, savory finish. In a previous article, Dale's tasting panel gave the 2017 Spicewood Vineyards Syrah the nod, saying it has blackberries, licorice, and dark roasted coffee. It's smooth and round in the mouth, simply delicious. 
and in a June article on Rosé, two Texas wineries were included. The 2019 Ready Vineyards Block 5, 18 from the Texas High Plains. They said it was elegant in style with raspberry notes and fine minerality on the finish. And they also included the 2020 William Chris Senso from the Texas High Plains. Has a vibrant nose, ripe peaches and strawberries, both fruity and floral. I'm always a little bit jealous when I see that Dale's tasting panel for the Houston Chronicle has met and has more wine recommendations. This got me thinking that I should start my own tasting panel. If you're a North Texas wine drinker who's tasted a lot of Texas wines and who would like to meet up with a small group for some blind tasting of Texas wine, please drop me an email at texaswinepod at gmail.com. Wine Spectator magazine announced its grand award winners in a recent edition. The grand award is Wine Spectator's highest award given to restaurants that have shown an uncompromising, passionate devotion to the quality of their wine programs. Usually the wine lists at this level feature 1,000 or more selections and deliver serious breadth of top producers, outstanding depth and mature vintages, and a selection of large format bottles, and on and on. Well, there were four Texas restaurants awarded, and three of them are in different locations of Pappas Brothers. The other is the Mastro Steakhouse and Post Oak Hotel in Houston, and they have a 131-page wine list. So what did I do? Well, of course, I looked through it to see what Texas wines they offered. And they do have some great Texas wines listed. Under Unique Whites, they include the Dukeman Vermentino and the McPherson Marsan and Roussan. Under Unique Reds, they include the Lewis Red Blend, the Dukeman Sangiovese from Ready Vineyard, and the Texoir Carignan and Morvedra. Then I took a look at the wine list from just one of the Pappas Brothers locations. I chose the one from Dallas. And wow, they've got a great selection of Texas wines. The Dallas wine list is 182 pages long. And here are just some of the Texas wines that they have included. They've got two different Inwood Estates Chardonnays, the Blanc de Bois from Los Pinos Ranch, the Rancho Loma Vineyards Rosé of Senso from Ready Vineyards, a couple of red wines from McPherson Cellars, the Fall Creek GSM from the Salt Lake Vineyard, the Hack Tempranillo, and they even have two fortified wines. One is from La Cruz de Camal, and the other is a fortified cream sherry Solera Reserva, a non-vintage wine from McPherson. I've never heard of that, but I would be curious to try it. Congratulations to all the winners. William Chris Wine Company recently announced that they've closed on the purchase of the Hoover Valley Vineyard, a 78-acre property in the Texas Hill Country AVA, and that includes 55 acres of vineyards. Hoover Valley Vineyard is in Burnett, Texas, and is home to 13 varieties of grapes. In addition to the vineyard, there are several existing structures on the property, and William Chris plans to renovate and operate those as a new tasting room destination, likely opening sometime in 2022. According to the Texas Wine Lover Vineyard List, Hoover Valley Vineyard includes plantings of Alianico, Cabernet Sauvignon, Grenache, Malbec, Marsan, Merlot, Montepulciano, Morvedra, Petit Syrah, Roussan, and Sangiovese. And that might not be the only new William Chris Wine Company tasting room destination to come to the Hill Country. Look for an outpost tasting room to pop up near a company-owned vineyard before too long. Stay tuned. 
Now, often this section of Texas Wine News celebrates the highlights and successes of big Texas wineries and big names. But a recent article brought to light the particular struggles of two small wineries in Walker County, which is where Huntsville is located. It's north of Conroe. The article details the recent struggles that Golden Oak Micro Cellars and Taisha Vineyards experienced during and after the February freeze. Both rely heavily on the white hybrid grape variety Blanc de Bois, which usually does well in humid conditions in that area. But the owners say that the Blanc de Bois really struggled this year, and most of the fruit was lost, and some of the vines were lost as well. Things look slightly more promising for the red grapes. Of course, replanting is a multi-year proposition, and it's not cheap. Owners of both wineries want to get High Plains fruit, but the timing couldn't be worse. They say that Texas is facing a statewide grape shortage because of the winter storm, April's hailstorm, and alleged drifting herbicide damage, which is affecting many of the growers in the High Plains. Not only that, but as a smaller winery in the midst of this shortage, Taisha Vineyard owner Joe Zimmerman has faced problems in competing with the larger demand of the Fredericksburg and Hill Country wine trail audiences, especially as he's seen prices inflate as much as 30% per ton. Now Zimmerman is having to turn to unfamiliar areas for grapes, even going so far as to go out of state just to make it through the year. However, his first priority is to use Texas grapes and wine. He's got plans to expand his four-acre vineyard to seven, and he says that will be a game-changer. The link to this article and to all the news I've mentioned can be found at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Hey, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and also leave me a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Texas Wine Pod. If you've already done all that, maybe send me your comments, questions, or ideas for a future episode. My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 802-585-1286. Maybe I'll share your comments or question on the next show. My guest on this episode is Ron Yates of Spicewood Vineyards and Ron Yates Wine. You likely know him. He's the cool one with the long hair and the beard. Ron is certainly one of the most genuine Texas wine people I know, and his outlook on wine and life is contagious. Here's my interview with Ron Yates. Thanks, Ron, for joining me today. Where does your Texas wine story begin? (laughs) Well, I guess technically my Texas wine story begins with the Allers. Our cousins, Ed and my dad, Ed Aller and my dad are our cousins, and so we kind of grew up every once in a while going out to the to the vineyard there at Fall Creek, where their property is, is kind of the lower, the southeast corner of our family ranch, and we're at the up on the northwest corner. So I've been, you know, I've been aware of the Texas wine industry since I was younger, but it really happened for me. I I, I was one of those really fortunate kids. I had to go to Spain to get my Spanish credit to graduate from the University of Texas. I had to. Uh, decided after my uh, fourth semester at UT after my sophomore year that I wanted to go to law school. And when I was uh, talking to the registrar, I told her this and she laughed for a good 10 minutes. And then when she finally gathered it back up, she was like, you know, you have 45 hours of Spanish left to take and you made a 70 in it last semester. And so we found a program where I got to go live with a family in Spain and I was supposed to be there for the month of May in 1999. And 
and really just get immersed and, and spend the month there and get credit. Instead of uh, a grade, it was just pass-fail. And I was like, I can do that. Uh, and while, while in Spain, we found that the Spanish beer was not that great. And it was usually pretty warm back then. And all the Spanish people we were meeting were always sitting out in the park and drinking wine. Even though I was 20, I was not supposed to be a beer drinker yet. But that was kind of what we gravitated towards. The family we lived with would go out and the 70-year-old would stay out till 12 in the morning and would make fun of us if we had come home before she had. And so we, we found it was much cheaper and it tasted way better to start drinking Tempranillo. And it, it really was enlightening. The culture in Spain and, and Europe in general wrapped around, you know, where, where wine is considered food instead of an alcoholic beverage. It just really, I became enamored with it. And the family that we lived with, their son grew Tempranillo in the Toro region. And we just spent uh, a lot of time around it. And being a son of, of many ranchers from Texas, I was like, I'm going to... I'm going to go home and plant Tempranillo one of these days, you know, thinking that my, my cousins were not smart enough to, to have planted this grape yet. Found out later at Fall Creek, they planted it in the 70s and the 80s and lost it, to, or sorry, the 80s and the 90s, and then lost it to Pierce's disease both times, so never got to see uh, fruition of the product. That's really where it hit me was a love for wine when I was in Europe. And and when I came home, I did make it into law school and graduated. But while I was in law school, we would always go to Central Market and buy all the Spanish wine we could buy. And, and you know, when I failed miserably at a previous career before the wine business, I had called both Dan Gatlin and Jim Johnson. And and I had some conversations with them and just, you know, realized I, like Tempranillo was going to be it for me. And, and I was... I was going to do it in Texas, you know. I'm a Texan, and we wanted to, to make the, the best wines we could here from the state. So you started first with Spicewood Vineyard, right? Yes. One night over a whole bunch of wine, I convinced my mother and father and sister to to buy Spicewood Vineyards. And so we bought Spicewood Vineyards, the four of us, in October of 2007. I have to ask, what was your attempted career in music? A good friend of mine had uh, had been in the music business up in New York for a long time, and he had worked with Arista Records and done a bunch of stuff, and he had worked with small bands like Santana and the Grateful Dead and Whitney Houston and some really cool stuff like that, but he was wanting to move back to Austin, and he had some kids that he wanted to grow up in Austin instead of in Manhattan, and we started an artist marketing, artist management, and record label, so three different uh, things, and we were moving along in 04, 05, 06, and, and then uh, when iTunes really, you know, had it figured out, it kind of killed it for a lot of small uh, startup record labels. I wondered if maybe you were a musician yourself. I mean, I, I can play G, C, and D on the guitar, but nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> Okay, so the early days of Spicewood Vineyard. Say a little bit about Spicewood Vineyards for folks who might not be familiar. Yeah, so Ed and Madeline Manigold bought uh, the property here, the 70 acres here in Spicewood. I believe they purchased it in 1991. Uh, they put the vineyard in in 92 and had about 17 acres existing. Both of them, I believe, were PhDs, very smart folks, and went on the look for, for some land that could really you know, foster the growth. And they really wanted to have their hands in the dirt and be be in the growing side. And that's kind of really where we felt we wanted to be. You know, back in 07, Becker was open on 290. There were a couple others, but it was not the Mecca on 290 that it is now. And we just didn't, uh, we just didn't find anything that over there that really totally piqued our interest as much as, as Spicewood did. 
And so uh, Ed and Madeline planted in 92. Uh, like I said, they had 17 acres, and we bought it in 07, and we ripped out about half the vineyard. We took out some some stuff, some Riesling and some Zinfandel and some Cab Franc and some stuff that we thought, while while producing okay fruit, was probably not going to be the, the lifeblood of the vineyard going forward. And so we, uh, up until this year, we had replanted, and we are up to about 32 acres here on the property at Spicewood. And so it's been a, a fairly thriving vineyard for us. I was under the mistaken impression early on that we were going to be able to to grow all of the fruit that we needed for our business here on the property. And I learned about three or four years in that that wasn't going to be possible, which is a good thing because if I was, you know, not able to sell all the stuff we were making, I probably didn't need to have have uh, vineyards anywhere else. Your namesake winery, Ron Yates, mm-hmm. came along a little bit later. Mm-hmm. What was your decision like to come up with a whole new place. So that originally originated because we had run out of production space at Spicewood. We were making about 4,500 to 5,000 cases of wine in a facility that was better suited for about 2,500 cases. And the the winemakers were real happy with me when it took them an hour and a half to pull barrels out every day to get to work and then another hour to put them back up in the afternoon. There was about to be some mutiny if we didn't uh, if we didn't find a new place. But originally that was the impetus. We went looking to find space just for production. It really wasn't intended to be a place open to the public. But when we started looking, the land prices in 07 in the Spicewood part of the world were much more affordable than the 290 part of the world. But in those quick five years, that had kind of changed and the prices were pretty crazy in both places. But we were really lucky through a real estate friend of ours who knew the lady who owned the property and it wasn't on the market. And he kind of facilitated that for us. And when we bought the uh, the property there on 290, we, we were originally going to call it Spicewood Vineyards and just kind of have two locations. But Spicewood is, at the moment, is about 70-75% of our production we grow ourselves. And we were really concerned what that would do to our kind of image of and the, trying to project like, hey, we grow a lot of the stuff. And, it, you know, it, it, it really kind of kind of compartmentalize it and you know one if you're going to spicewood right original or the new one and so after kind of thinking on it we decided it would do some damage to what we were trying to accomplish at spicewood that and we really enjoyed the wines that we were making from all the high plains growers and so what really came out of that is ron yates became the place we would showcase all of the best growers throughout the state and at spicewood we really try to showcase the grapes we grow ourselves Right at the moment, we're making everything at Yates because it's 20 minutes down the road and the, the machines are about 30 years newer and and fancier and, and, and do a fun job. In fact, the, in 2016, it was the first year we were making wine at Ron Yates. We had harvested Sauvignon Blanc at Spicewood. We had an old block that was from 92 and, and the younger block that was from 07 and 08. And they were both about five tons. And we pressed the old stuff at Spicewood the first day. And then the next day we picked the younger stuff. The press broke in the middle of the night after pressing uh, all of the, of the old Sauvignon Blanc. So we decided to take the, uh, to take the new stuff just over to, to, to Yates and get it pressed. And upon using the new press, we, we realized about 150 more gallons just off using the press and decided, I think we're going to use the newer machinery that we've, that we've tucked. So at the, at the moment we're making at, at Yates, but we do have plans to kind of, once we get Spicewood back up and running with some newer machines and kind of in, you know, back to the future, we will, we will most likely make all of the estate stuff here and that'll be kind of, kind of be the dichotomy. 
So I read that your winemaker actually designed the Ron Yates production facility. How involved do you get in winemaking? I get involved uh, as much as they let me. You know, we know we, Todd. We hired Todd in I guess 2012 was his first harvest, and man, this will be the tenth harvest. Wow! Uh, and we really. We really set out to find a, a special winemaker that was going to do things in the state that we, we hadn't been doing and trying to push the limits. And we found Todd. Thankfully, my sister, she's our, our vice president, and she headed up the search. And I had had a, a lady from Washington in mind that I, I thought I was going to hire, but she kept she kept poking on Todd and kept pushing for Todd. And when, when he came by and we got to meet, we clicked. And then of course I tried some of his wines and was, was, was blown away. And I really liked the, the aspect that he was a Texan and he had spent, you know, 12 or 13 years in Sonoma, but had a real desire to come back and to make the best wines he possibly could in the state. We were looking for, for somebody with some really great aspirations. And that's kind of been my focus is, you know, yeah, we can do certain things and we can do things that'll make us more money here and we can cut costs. But really, I want to make the best wine we can make every year, year in and year out. And Todd really fit that bill. And and Reagan, who's another one of our winemakers, has been he, who also owns Sandy Road Vineyards, uh, has been one of my friends since we were in fifth or sixth grades and kind of been inseparable. And, you know, we were in both each other's weddings and all that good stuff. And he called me and I, I believe it was the spring of 2013. I was like, I need a job for six months till I can find something else to do. I'm tired of construction. And Todd and Reagan really clicked. And so when it came time to hire an, uh, a new assistant winemaker or associate winemaker, I was like, Todd, go to California. Let's find somebody great. Let's push the limits. And he was like, no, I've got him right here. I'm going to hire Reagan. So, so you know, at first, at first I was a little, you know, you know friends, got a, friends are a little skeptical of each other every once in a while. But, <laughs> but I, I could not be more impressed with, with the work that they put in and, and the product they're, they're coming up with. I'm there to help and watch and see, but they usually, you know, unless there's some manual labor, they're usually trying to keep me away from all that stuff. I understand. Well, they're turning out some great wines. You had a big event recently that I want to talk about. And of course, I'm talking about getting to meet 50 Cent. <laughs> Tell me how that came about. Yeah, we went to to pick up the saddle for the, I went in the Top Texas Wine at the Houston Rodeo the night before the uh, the auction. And it was, my mom, mom walked in with my mother and uh, Karen and Paul Bonarigo were there. And and walked up and I was like, what is everybody freaking out for over in the corner? You know, it's a bunch of Houston folks. It kind of felt like uh, like an old movie or something. It was really cool. And this over in the corner, I was like, is that 50 Cent? That is 50 Cent. And <laughs> to find out that his wine had won second place. Everybody wanted to take a picture with him and say hi. And I, to be fair to him, I, I was amazed at how how happy he was to shake everybody's hands and say hi and take pictures. And so I squeezed in and said hello and said a couple words and got a picture with him and it was pretty cool well i hope he gets to try your wine tell me about your wine that that won yeah so the our uh, 2017 friesen vineyards tempranillo won the saddle which you know pleased me to no end because it's the grape that we staked our claim on as a texas winemaker everybody wants to win that saddle so they can brag to their to their their compadres and so we're we're real proud and happy this year Tell me about Friesen Vineyard and also about the farmer behind Friesen Vineyard. Oh, John. Yeah, John. It's a great story. I have to I have to give a shout out to Jeff Cope for his wonderful list of vineyards because back in 2015 or so, we were we were looking for some Capsov to make our semi-sweet off-dry Cabernet Claret at, at Spicewood. 
and a little barbecue chili wine. And we were purchasing some, some some cab from the Binghams, but it was it was a little little too high quality for what I wanted. But, you know, we were kind of looking for something just it was a little cheaper, and you know, it was going to be an off dry wine. It didn't need to be the most amazing fruit we'd ever seen. And we were driving up to the high plains and just started with the A's and calling down down the list. And we got to to F and called John, and I believe he had he had put the vineyard in the ground. I believe the cab was in its second leaf, and the Merlot and the Tempranillo were both in first leaf, and apparently he hadn't been able to get anybody to come take a look or had drawn any interest in the vineyard. And so he thought when we called, one of his friends was playing a practical joke on him, and he's like, what is this? Who, who put you up to this? Why are you calling me? And so I believe they were on a trip, on a family trip, heading to go to the lake or go camping or somewhere. And they turned around and came back and met us at the vineyard. And I was an hour or so behind Todd and Reagan on the way up. And I started getting phone calls and pictures and text messages about how immaculate this vineyard looked and how everything was in order. All the, all the handwork, all the care that needs to go into producing really incredible fruit was taking place. And when I got there, you could see, and I still say from that day, it, it, it's one of the most amazing vineyards for just the work that's put in. It reminds you of when you go and see those beautiful vineyards that are perfectly in unison in Sonoma and Napa and all the time and effort. And it was very obvious that he was doing all those things that, that needed to, to lend themselves to growing really, really great fruit and making great wine. So we on the spot took all, all five acres of cab and and three acres of Tempranillo and three acres of Merlot. And, uh, you know, it was a scary bet for me because that that tonnage right there was about average of what we were making at the time total. But we just, we knew it was going to be spectacular. In fact, we actually took the second leaf cab, which normally we, we drop until the fourth leaf. But that year we made the Claret in 2015 out of predominantly John's second leaf cab and won a double gold at the Jefferson Cup, which was a, you know, a big sommelier invitation only wine competition. So we kind of joke that even in the second leaf with John's fruit we've won at least at least one double gold every single year and then we got to meet John and John is is a character John is uh, you know he's 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 almost if not more prideful than me and he <laughs> he you know he we were talking about talking about some of the better grape growers in the state and he was like well I want my name there my like I want to be that person I, I want to yeah and just you know you could tell early on the drive to, to be great was was there and that really fits with what we're trying to do and and John's got an incredible crew and a lot of his family members work with him and you know he's a character and, and we're we're really happy we have him I now I just gotta try to try to keep everybody else from playing grapes with him right now where's his vineyard <laughs> he is in I guess technically loop is the name of the town it's south of Brownfield kind of between La Mesa and Seminole on the south side of okay. the, of the of the high plains how are things looking out there right now? Well, the original, the the Merlot Cabin Temp, I believe, had wind fans and hail nets and everything looks like we got a good average tonnage crop for us and everything looks really nice. We had some some Petit Verdot and some Cab uh, Franc that would have been in third leaf that was going to give us a little bit of fruit, but we didn't have hail netting or or the fans up, so the April freeze kind of got us there. So we'll have a little bit a little bit of fruit coming from from the new stuff, but the normal stuff looks looks beautiful. So often people talk about, you know, Texas terroir, and I always tell people not to expect a Texas wine to taste like a Spanish wine because there's so many differences. Mm -hmm. What about Texas Tempranillo do you love? And is it that it compares nicely to the Tempranillos that you were drinking in Spain, or, or how do you 
kind of consider Texas Tempranillo in the grand scheme of Tempranillos of the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I love Tempranillo for its malleability. That Tempranillo can be made big and heavy and intense and, you know, as Ribera del Duero as it gets, but it can also be soft. And in Texas, with our heat, you could almost make Pinot Noir like 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 versions of Tempranillo. I really dig the, the Duero. I mean, I love Rioja, but I really tend to, to lean more towards the Duero with the stronger, heftier, a little bit higher alcohol versions. And I really feel like that's kind of more the way we go. In Texas, the way we make Tempranillo, Todd likes to push the ripeness. And so we really get these these big, intense, fruity wines, but with higher alcohol that are, you know, can be probably more food-driven wines than they are port sippers. But then we we make a Tempranillo out of Neil Newsom's Tempranillo that we do at like 13.1 or 13.2 that's very soft and kind of more traditional in that Spanish style. That's the, that's the really unique thing about Tempranillo in the state is that it can be done in so many ways and each different winery kind of can put their little spin on it. I, I normally would say we tend a little bit more towards the Duero types for us, but that's just, you know, Tempranillo can be made so many different ways. I mean, we even make rosé out of it, and it's it's amazing. In Spain, you have more kind of a traditional method that they follow, and you tend to get tend to get more similarity between regions kind of and between each each winery within that region. And I think that's, you know, year to year in Tempranillo can the, the 17s were, were big and huge because it was that wonderful, per- perfect 17 year. And then in 2018, we had less of a crop and we picked a, l- a little bit lighter and it was, you know, less alcohol, less intense, softer. And then 19, we were right back up to, to really big, intense Tempranillo. So that's what I, I love the, the diversity of the grape in Texas. And I think we're really just scratching the surface of what, what's possible with it. I hear that you have exquisite taste in barrels, and I read that there were some international judges that that had quite a lot to say about that. Is that is that true? What I've read, it is true. We, that's that's a that's a fun story. Yeah, it was 2019, I believe. We were at at Yates. The Texas International Wine Competition was having a judges tour after they'd scored all the wines, and so they came out, and we were we were tasting through a bunch of wines in the barrels, and they had, I guess, the guest judge was Count John Salvi, and he was the I believe he was the 20th Master of Wine, and he's English, but has spent the last you know 50 years in Bordeaux, and and came into the winery and and didn't didn't really want to try anything and he kind of was walking with a cane and 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 was like no nah, i'm just gonna i'm gonna hang out and so no big deal so as we're we're tasting through he's kind of looking he pulls me aside and he's like you have all the finest barrels in the world like where, where do you get these and i was like well you know france and america and he kind of laughed and and he was like no these are all my my friends down the road from me and and i'm just impressed i will try something and so we poured a, I poured a 2018, I believe it was, a Tio Pancho Ranch Vineyards Viognier that we had been aging in oak and it was in brand new French oak for about, oh, six or seven months at that time. And he took a sip and looked at me and he was like, you, you grew this in Texas. And I was like, yeah, about 45 minutes north of here. And his cane, he flipped it very quickly and his cane became a seat. And he sat down and held out his glass and said, pour me some more. And so, and then when they went home, he wrote some really great things about us in the Spanish uh, Wine Monthly Journal. And then they came back and visited again in January of 2020. And I was real proud because we had had 2019 Friesen Vineyards Merlot and Friesen Vineyards Cab in the barrel, which, you know, normally I'm an anything but cab kind of guy. We certainly did not set out to make 
Texas Cab and Texas Merlot, those vineyards were going to be for blends and for some alcohol bumps and wines and that kind of stuff. And, and here we were, we were trying the, these wines and he looked at me and said, these are the best wines I've tasted all week. And I kind of laughed at him and said, you know, you've tasted 1500 wines this week. And he said, I know these are the best wines I've tasted all week. And they went back into that same Spanish wine monthly and wrote that our Merlot and Cab could be confused with any first growth Bordeaux. So I thought that was a pretty, that was a pretty good compliment. I'd say so. Well, the judges at Texom really liked one of your new releases as well. Can you talk about the Battle of Toro? Yeah, the Battle of Toro is a fun one for us. You know, it's 50% Tempranillo from here off the property in Spicewood and 50% Torriga Nacional from our EB Vineyard, which is on the west side of 281 in Round Mountain. Back in 2008, 2009, and 2010, before Doug Lewis, Doug, and Duncan got the fruit from Round Mountain Vineyard, we used to make Tempranillo and Tariga, and early on, there was just not enough in the first few harvests to really do them separately. It just, you know, it was a difference between about 150 cases or 75 cases each, and we just decided, let's just do it together. And we would always laugh that one day the Tempranillo would taste, you could, today I'm getting red plums and red cherries, and the next day I get blueberries, I get I get Tariga, and it would just consistently battle itself and no one would, it would never kind of take control and, and coalesce and come together. And we kind of laughed and said, well, you know, we're not going to do that again. And then here it is, you know, 10 years later, we finally get our first harvest from Tariga at the EB and it's only about two barrels. And so it's run again, that same, not enough yet to, to really make a, a standalone varietal out of it. It was a really great year for Tempranillo at Spicewood. And we had, we, we picked two of our favorite barrels here and we blended it together and kind of let it sit in the barrel for a long time and in the bottle for a long time. And, and it was doing that same thing, just battling back and forth. But finally here about last January and we were tasting and you could really start to see the wine coming together. <clears throat> I just have those days where I actually just, just tried it this morning, the open bottle and I was like blueberries. It's just, it's Tariga today. And so, it, you know, we, we always laugh because it, it's moody and one day it wants to show, show one grape, another day it wants to show the other, but it's really working well together. And even the days that that one is shining, the other one is there in the, in the backup just as good. And and we, we've been really proud of it. And I'm, I'm excited about, you know, it was probably just going to be a one-off blend, but the, re, the reaction has been, has been pretty spectacular. So we'll probably uh, move forward with that in the future. But, it, you know, the Battle of Toro was also, just for, for fun, the Battle of Toro was a, a, a battle in the 1400s in the War of Castilian Succession between Spain and Portugal, where Portugal fought for its independence. And so it's just kind of all tongue-in-cheek on the, on the interplay between those two grapes. Cool. I should specify that that Battle of Toro was picked by the Texom International Wine Awards judges as the best red in Texas. That just came out not long ago, so congrats on that. Thank you. I'm pretty proud of the fact that the, you know two of the of the the higher end awards for Texans to win the saddle and the and the top red at Texom happened in the same year. We're pretty proud of that. So, do you do any single varietal? Tariga, or what have you done with that grape in the past? We have made in the back in in early late two thousands, early two thousand tens. We made we did make one standalone Tariga, but we we will as soon as that vineyard. I mean, it's pretty much now given us enough fruit to have have some options now that we're we're growing in in yields and crop size. Yeah, I think Todd 
really plans on doing some some standalone Tarigas, but also Todd loves loves port. So you know, I I certainly see see some some port in the future for that grape as well. What whites are you into? Well, Sauvignon Blanc is our grape at Spicewood. Unfortunately, in December of this year, we had to rip out about 85% of it. Most of it was the, the vines planted in 92 that had had two or three different bouts with Pierce's disease over the last 20 years or so. And and we're still producing really, really high-quality grapes. They just were coming in at about half a ton instead of two tons an acre. And so we finally had to make the, the sad decision to rip all that out. But we have replanted about four of those acres this year, and we will be replanting some more next year as well as some more Syrah and some more Cab. But uh, yeah, Sauvignon Blanc is kind of our uh, grape at Spicewood. We do make uh, some Vermentino, usually from when the, when the Binghams have some Vermentino to sell us. I know they're getting they're getting to where they, they need all their fruit now, not having to, enough to sell us, but that. And we also just made a, a wonderful Picpoul Blanc from Roland Taylor Vineyards from 2020 that is just lip-smacking acidity. It's amazing. Uh, so that's really kind of the focus of the the fruit at Spicewood and at, at Ron Yates. Oak-aged Viognier is kind of our aim there. Up until this past year, we've been getting uh, Viognier from Tio Pancho, which has now become Bear Vineyards. Noel has taken over and doing a really great job. But again, there was some Pierce's disease on that Viognier so the same thing was happening there the the tonnage just kept getting less and less and less and so she ripped that out this year so we're hoping soon she'll she'll plant some more but we've found some really great backup options this year for Viognier so we'll do that my good friend Chris Brundrette was nice enough in last year to sell us two or three tons of his La Pradera Roussan, the one that just, I believe, was the the judge's selection for the white wine at Texan so we have a good you know, 125, 150 cases of that sitting in barrel that we're, we're aging right now. We'll get get that in a bottle soon, hopefully probably in July. And we also make a really wonderful Albarino. The 2020 version was from Neil Newsom, and that was just gorgeous fruit. We get some from the Binghams a lot. So we're still trying to find uh, a full-time source for that fruit yet. We haven't really settled on that. But yeah, Viognier and Albarino for Yates and uh, Vermentino, Picpoul, and uh, Sauvignon Blanc at Spicewood. At Spicewood, this past year we planted, uh, we replanted, like I said, about four acres of Sauvignon Blanc, but we've also, last year we put in some, some Carignan and some Graciano, and so we've really, at Spicewood, kind of moving towards more of those Spanish grapes, and, and uh, the, the the preliminary results have been spectacular. You know, we've had a little Graciano planted here on the property that has been a blender for our, our good guy blend. The Graciano, we have about half an acre. It's a little more than half an acre planted. Put that in the ground about 2008, 2009, and have just really loved what, what it's done. But it's it's been a component or a blender for the good guy every year, and we haven't had the ability to do it on its own. And so that's what we're really excited about is we have another, I think we put another three acres of Graciano in the ground to do, if not a Graciano Tempranillo blend at least, to try to do Graciano a standalone. We really enjoyed it. And and the, my other favorite grape is Carignan. I just dig, really dig Carignan. And we've got about three acres of that in the ground here. And so yeah, I think the future is really bright for those grapes. And it kind of lends back towards my Spanish le- wine leanings. But that's been really fun. And we are st- we're trying to figure out. We've got another three acres on the front part of the Yates property because if you look at it right now from the road it looks like everything's leaning to the to the right and about to fall off the 
off the property, so we've got to make it look more aesthetically pleasing and get some really great <laughs> grapes in there. Uh, so we're having internal internal debates right now about about what we're going to plant. So you know we're looking for it. You know, pick pool is really the acidity in that grape really has intrigued me, especially uh, for for something in the hill country where we really struggle keeping acid in white wines. That's why the, our Sauvignon Blanc is such an anomaly here at, at Spicewood. But you know, I, I think there's a really big future for the pick pool grape as well. Everybody tells me I need to try some of your pet nap. You know, we have a lot of fun with PetNet. Todd started that back in 2013 or 2014. He just, without telling anybody, pulled about 10 or 15 cases off of some Riesling and made a dry Riesling PetNet, and it was just beautiful. And so every year we've kind of changed and changed and grown, and normally we make a Grenache PetNet from farmhouse vineyards, and it just can't keep it in stock. At Spicewood this year, we decided we... That Viognier that we were talking about, we normally had four to five to six tons of it. And we had about 500 pounds last year. And so we took that and some Sangiovese, both from Bear Vineyards, and did a little, I think it's 91 and 9, Sangiovese and Viognier, did a pet nat out of that. And they're, yeah, they're singing. They're, yeah. Tasty. It's, it's fun, fun. You know, when it's, when it's 100 degrees outside, it's super refreshing drink. I wonder how you keep your energy and your excitement and your upbeat attitude all the time. Because every time I see you... You're really positive and seem very excited about life in Texas wine. Well, you know, it's 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 hard for me to not be enthusiastic. I mean, if 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 you saw what was happening in 2007, if you saw the, the industry as a whole in Texas, it was you know we were moving forward, but it was just not a not a lot of excitement. There wasn't there wasn't people trying to left and right to get into business, and most of my friends when I told them. What I was doing, we're kind of maybe not to my face, but behind my back, we're like, "What is he doing? That guy, that's dumb." That's and I, I, I really have taken pleasure in proving people wrong. Like I said earlier, I'm a proud Texan, and I, I, I saw in those first few vintages what was really possible here if you really put your your mind to it, and we really work. and And I get to wake up every day and 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 go to the vineyard, and you know. For somebody like me that really, really loves wine and I love being with people and talking and, and, you know, just relaxing, making conversation, doing all the, all the fun things that, that, you know, not everybody gets to go to the winery at at 9am. Some people have to go to a real job and sit at a a desk every day or do those (laughs) things. And so I just, I always try to not, to not let myself forget how lucky I am to be in the situation that I'm in. And, you know, and we also, we get to be the, you know, I mean, I know there are there are the, the, the groups so I would never consider us the first wave. You know, there's the, the Beckers and the Binghams and the, the Bonarigos and the, the Allers and, you know, Yano and, and Kim and his father, McPherson up there that all came before us and laid and laid the grounds for us to be doing what we're doing. But I, I still, I really like that we get, we get to be an early and get to be a part of creating something that, you know, when my daughters are old enough to hopefully take over the winery one day, I really hope we have left them a vibrant, viable, amazing industry. You know, getting to see people smile of, some, of a product that we made, that we saw from fruit, that we ushered, turned it into a, to wine and finished it and getting to, to be present for that whole process and being able to see the smile on somebody's face when they're enjoying something that you you had a hand in making. That's uh, rewarding for me. It's good stuff. I asked uh, listeners to submit any questions that they may have for you. And I did have one question about your 
hair regimen, but I'm not going to ask you that. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to ask you another question that was submitted by a listener. What modifications did you make during COVID? They noticed that you had managed to stay really involved with your wine club and the public. What of those things do you think will continue on now that we're reopening and starting to do in-person events and so forth? Yeah, you know, I heard Mike McHenry say this the other day. It's like, like, what were we doing before? Like, you know, why were we not trying to to connect in other ways with our customers? It blows my mind that 16 months ago, we didn't offer online tastings or, or virtual, you know, stuff like that. Because you can't, you know, people, we, especially in Texas, we have people in Dallas and Houston and San Antonio, and they're not there in the Hill Country. And they can't be there on a Thursday afternoon to go sip. And, and it's been such a, a great way to connect with your customers. And, you know, we started right away, we started doing things that we normally do with our wine club members that like like our, our tasting notes and that kind of stuff it, it was tough for us because we don't do a whole lot of distribution we don't do a whole lot of stuff out out there we really try to to sell our wines by the hand and our wine quality and our customer service and our fun are kind of what what keeps people coming back i think and you know probably the wine quality first hopefully the other stuff there but it was tough because all of a sudden, we didn't have that connection, and we didn't have them coming to us. We had to still continue you know, that relationship that we'd been building and building, and so it was tough. We had to figure out how we were going to move forward, but really, the, the virtual stuff really helped us. We were able to interact and have fun and enjoy things with our with our customers like they were there, even though they, they weren't there, and so that was that was a big thing, the virtual stuff, but we were also really lucky. At, at both places, we had room to spread out, and... Yeah. At one point, at both places, we had outdoor tables that were about 40 feet from each other. And you could call ahead of time and pay for your wines, and they'd be sitting on the, you know, on the table open with the glasses. And you, nobody ever had to come in within you know, 20 feet of each other. And, and I think we did a really good job of making people feel safe early on. We, you know, it, was, it was quite a difficult time. And in the limited amount of time they're going to be out of their house, we really wanted to maximize that time for them and to make them feel safe and comfortable and give them kind of a sense of normalcy in what was not a normal time. And so we we had to get with the, the, the tasting room teams and we really had to work on how we were how we were going to approach the situation. You know, we, we started at Spicewood. We started doing the, the Friday night wind down and on every first Friday night down in the barrel room, it was Lauren, our event coordinator, me, an artist, and Michael, who was helping us with the with the recording, and we do four people and do the do an interview and a wine tasting, including the artist, and selling the selling the bottles for people at home to interact and do the tasting with, and that was really fun. We we still continue that to this day. Thankfully, in uh, in the spring, we opened it up to a live audience, and that's been really fun. So we've now got you know 40, 50 people, 60 people sitting there enjoying the show as well as everybody at home getting to interact. It's just been new forms of ways of trying to communicate that, that customer service and that care and, and, and sharing something that you love with your, with your customers. It's, it's called Friday Night Wine Down. It's the first Friday of every month, and we, we put the, the wines out on the website about a month or two ahead of time. We're going to try to be better and get it all planned for the fall so we have a set schedule and we're a little more ahead of time. But it's been, you know, this past... The past spring is with the ups and downs of, of stuff. It's been hard to really do a lot of future planning, but I think we're there where we can finally do that. But we'll have all that on the website, and it's wine club members and whoever else wants to, wants to come. Yeah. Cool. What 
What events might you have coming up at either location that you're excited about this summer? Yeah, so we've got the Friday Night Wine Downs. In July, we're doing a party because we wanted to have a party. So we're doing a party called Just for the Hell of It, because just because wine not is the, the slogan. But we're having the amazing Fleetwood Mac cover band out for that. Yes. But yeah, music's always been my first love, and wine is kind of really... A close second, or probably at this point, supplanted it as number one. Anytime that I can mix wine and music together and have friends and family and, and, and loved ones around, that's, that's really what we aim for. So we do a lot of, of live music events. I just actually yesterday had a conversation with my friends from C3 Presents, which we looks like we're going to try for next Mother's Day of next year to try to put the A Day in the Vines concert on again. I don't know if you saw that concert we were supposed to have for Mother's Day of, of uh, 2020, and we had some really small bands playing like Nora Jones and, you know, Patty Griffin and Whoa. Mavis Staples and the Revivalists. Seriously? Yeah, I'd worked for a couple years on getting that one put together, and it was, it was pretty sad. And a further, you know, kick to the behind was those two days in May of 2020 was about 72 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. So it would have been perfect. perfect. Yeah, C three is the is the folks that put on Austin City Limits Music Festival in Lollapalooza. We'd love to have some kind of large, big event like that music event in the Texas Hill Country to sh- help us showcase our wines. So that's that's hopefully going to be back on the books if we can make it all happen. I'm marking my calendar now, and I'm going to say a prayer that it works out. Yeah, that sounds super fun. Yeah, that'll be the Saturday and Sunday, Saturday and Sunday of uh, Mother's Day weekend. That's a good one. I like it. Me too. Where should people connect with you on social media? Uh, yeah, so you can reach me at really Facebook or Instagram, both for, for both. I have all of the accounts on my phone, so I'm constantly, much to the chagrin of my wife, I am constantly uh, <laughs> checking our social media accounts, but it's at Spicewood Vineyards and at Ron Yates Wines. And also, if you want to get to me on my personal one, it's at Club de Yates, which in Spanish means Yacht Club. Nice. I don't think I have that one. Yeah, it's a secret one. Oh, I have one more wine I'd like to talk about. Um, okay. If you don't mind, yeah. I, I, I'm really proud of a new release we have coming out in in November to the wine club and then into the tasting room. You know, at Spicewood, we make a blend called The Good Guy, which is named after my grandfather. When I was a little kid, I could not pronounce the word grandfather, apparently, or, or grandpa, and he said it came out as good guy. And so I was the first grandchild, so it stuck with everybody. So as I grew up, he was he was the good guy. And when we were buying the place, I could uh, only afford the two planted vineyards in the winery at Spicewood, but not the two cleared pieces of adjoining land that the Manigolds also owned. My grandfather being so excited that his long-haired hippie grandson was getting out of the music industry and, and into a respectable profession like agriculture, that he bought the two pieces of land and gave us a uh, 99-year lease for a dollar, so just so he could still be in control. But we've made that wine for every year since 2011, and I've really, really loved what that's done for us. But in 2018, my father passed away, and both my two kids and my niece all called him the good guy. So he was the good guy for both of them. So we decided that we would make a, a good guy for Yates to honor my dad, and I just told Todd, you know, 
do something. Don't tell me what it is. Just make a blend and make it spectacular. You know, no, no big deal. Make it, make it spectacular. And so it, we actually just last week, I, I just got to taste it for the first time. And he made a super Tuscan blend. It is 60% of Neil Newsom's Sangiovese and 20, 20 of John Friesen's Cab and Merlot. And when, you know, when, when we made the, the Friesen Tempranillo, Todd looked at me and said, this is the best Texas wine I've ever made. And it won the saddle. So it was, you know, it was a good omen. When we tasted this one the other day, he looked at me and set his glass down and said, this is the best wine I've ever made. And he won sweepstakes at the Riverside a few years ago in California. So he's, he's made some pretty spectacular wines. So we're pretty excited about that one coming out. I guess so. Well, and Good Guy is the perfect wine to drink for Father's Day, too. Exactly. It's a neat family exactly. story. And so when is the new one coming out? New November, come out you said? Yeah, into November, right, right around Thanksgiving. Wonderful. Well, this has been super fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. I'm glad that you're doing all you're doing and keeping up the energy and the enthusiasm for Texas wine. And you're always a lot of fun at all the events. I get to wake up every morning and be in an exciting new industry that that is that's just, you know, every day is a challenge and every day is something different. And for me, not sitting at my desk and doing lawyer stuff day in and day out was the, the thrill of of, of growing and, you know, combining all these different things, of growing fruit and, you know, creating a product and interacting with the customers. And it's just, there's, it's like seven different businesses all in one, but it just, it's invigorating. I love it. I love getting to, to be with people, getting to enjoy amazing wines and getting to really, it's just as fun to see all of our, our competitors grow too. Watching, watching Chris and, and Bill grow from that little room, watching, Pedernalis grow and, and grow and grow and, and just seeing Becker go from Becker to huge Becker and seeing all the little new tasting rooms come popping up. And, and to me, actually, that was a really great industry kind of sign last August when we had been closed for four or five months and it was time to buy grapes. And, you know, in the cash flow business, there was no income coming in, no cash flowing. I really thought we were going to see some of the newer smaller wineries that had just started putting money down say that's ah, just gonna cut our losses and and move on and next time you know you drive by them and oh they're putting in a new building or they're putting a restaurant in and doubling down and and so it's been it's been refreshing to see to see that i don't know it's just exciting to me to to be a part of something that's dynamic that's growing and that's it's been fun the future's bright the future is bright and you can do it all in your flip-flops instead of a suit. <laughs> exactly. I get to have long hair, don't have to shave, and don't have to wear those pesky socks. Thank you, Ron, for your time and all that you do to represent Texas wine. Right after this interview was recorded, I was at the Ron Yates Winery just after Ron found out that their 2017 Friesen Vineyards Amalgamation won big at the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition. They got a Best of Class Award in the Vinifera Red Blend category. Congrats go out to Ron, Todd, and the whole team. Next, I'm handing out demerits and gold stars. My gold star goes out to a fabulous new restaurant in Fredericksburg that has a tremendous Texas wine list. It's called Hill and Vine, and they've been open for about a month now. Jesse Barter and his team are putting out some great food and a beautiful, modern, hill country-themed space. They've also got a large outdoor area that has live music some nights. There's an old VW bus that has been transformed into a tie-dyed bar and even a store next door called Sunday Supply 
that has to-go coffee, desserts, and other foods perfect for your picnic. During my recent month-long stay in Fredericksburg, I ate at Hill & Vine about eight times for dinner and also for brunch. I enjoy the outdoor space, and I understand they'll be opening that space for outdoor dining in the fall. The wine list at Hill & Vine is just lovely, and it includes a number of Texas wines by the glass and by the bottle. Jesse Barter used to be the general manager at 4.0 Cellars, now called Texas Wine Collective, so he knows a thing or two about Texas wine. Cheers to Hill & Vine. Oh, and I'm going to be sharing some insider tips to dining and wine tasting in Fredericksburg in my next podcast newsletter. If you haven't already, please sign up for the newsletter on the website, thisistexaswine.com. My demerit goes to restaurants, especially those in the heart of the Texas wine country, that do not carry Texas wine. Or maybe they just have one token Texas wine on their list. Come on. People come to the Hill Country in general and to Fredericksburg specifically because they're interested in Texas wine. So it's really odd to me that a fine dining restaurant wouldn't offer people a better choice that represents their place of business. Sure, I drink wine from all over the world, and most other Texas wine drinkers do too, but that's really beside the point. I'm rereading The Judgment of Paris right now, and what we're dealing with here is what California faced in the 1970s. Now, it's tiring, but all I know to do is to let the restaurants know that I expect to see Texas wines on their list, and I hope that you'll join me in requesting Texas wine whenever you dine out. Join me in two weeks for the next episode. Ray Wilson of Wine for the People is my guest. Remember, all the show notes for this episode are at thisistexaswine.com. That's where you'll find the link to all of the news stories I shared. And while you're there, you can also sign up for the newsletter and click support the podcast tab to buy me a glass of Texas wine or three. Big thanks to Matt McGinnis of Big Thirst Marketing for helping secure recent podcast guests. And thanks to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Thanks for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all. Cheers.